Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Undivided, episode number 47, which is brought to you by our sponsor, Audible.com. That's Audible.com, the world's leader in spoken audio, audiobooks, online periodicals and speeches. For all things spoken audio, it's Audible.com. Now head on over to Audible.com after the show this evening. And the drop-down menu box to your right, enter Life Coach Radio Network for a chance to win a free 30-day trial of Audible.com. That's Audible.com, the sponsor of our program here on the Life Coach Radio Network. And welcome into Undivided, everyone, episode number 47, The Stigma of Addiction. We are live here at 7 o'clock straight up on the East Coast here in New Jersey. My guest, Paul Silva, will join me from Canada, and we are here on the fifth day of June, the year 2019. And the disclaimer for tonight's program, the views of episode, undivided episode number 47, The Stigma of Addiction, may not necessarily be the views of myself as host, Frank Chimidori, my guest this evening, the aforementioned Paul Silva, and may not necessarily be the views of the Life Coach Radio Network. So welcome into Undivided. Welcome to our show. If you're joining us for the first time, thank you very much. If you're a regular listener, I appreciate that as well. And it's been three weeks, three weeks since we um, were on with Nadia Tenorio for episode 46. And I've talked about that on the program before. You know, sometimes those three weeks go by in a blink of an eye, and sometimes they feel quite long. And this time around, it felt quite long. Yet I was quite busy, and I hope that all of you had a good few weeks. We had the Memorial Day holiday weekend, and there was also a holiday weekend in Canada as well. Uh, Memorial Day weekend here, we stop and honor those who served for our freedom here in the United States and served in the military throughout the world and gave their lives for us so that we could do this program here tonight. So we're always mindful of that, uh, the veterans of this great nation and the men and women that have put themselves into harm's way for our peace and freedom. And I hope that all of you are doing well as these storms have come through. Uh, We're under a storm warning here in New Jersey, and addictions are kind of like a storm. So it's a good bridge, you know. Uh, All those people touched by flooding and by storms and by uh, tornadoes, addiction could be like a tornado. It could come in and turn everything upside down. It's touched everyone in some way. And there is a certain stigma around addiction in society. It's touched families, and there's stigma around people within different socioeconomic brackets in workplaces. It's touched everyone in some way at some point in their lives, whether it's a friend, whether it's a relative or spouse, whether it's a parent or a sibling. My own scenario, I'm an adult child of an alcoholic, so it's had a profound impact on my own life. And as I've talked about in prior episodes, I've had two bosses in two previous jobs that were alcoholics, and that had a very profound effect on my career and some of the things that went on in my own work life because it brought back a lot of things from my own upbringing, my own childhood. There's some quick statistics I'm going to share before I introduce Paul and get him up here. Uh, This is according to the CDC. 
In the United States, 25% of adults have had at least one heavy drinking day. So that's five or more drinks for men, four drinks or more for women in the last year. The number of alcoholic liver disease deaths was 21,815. The number of alcohol-induced deaths excludes accident, excluding accidents and homicides is at 34,865. And then on the drug abuse side, with heroin specifically, it's the highest uh, death rate is in 25 to 44-year-olds. In the year 2000 to the year 2013, drug overdose deaths from heroin quadrupled from 0.7 per every 100,000 deaths to 2.7 deaths per every 100,000. It's four times higher prevalence for men than women in the data that I found from 2013, again, from the CDC. From 2000 to 2013, age-adjusted rate for heroin and overdose increased in every region of the United States and increased the most in the Midwest region. And drug overdose is the largest cause cause, excuse me, of injury-related death in the United States, and those deaths have tripled since 2010 in relation to heroin. So that gives you some insight and a backdrop as we introduce Paul Silva. Paul is a life and personal development coach. He works with people and helps them in transition and specializes in addiction recovery. Uh, He spent 25 years in the hospitality industry as a chef, uh, he's worked in a variety of different roles, mentoring and teaching young culinarians. Uh, he's been in recovery since 2011. He was introduced to the profession of coaching. He has a blog called Message in a Bottle. He had a podcast called Buzzkill Pod. And he authors, he's the author of the book, Longing for the Spirit. Today, Paul offers coaching and is creating a group coaching program for those in second stage of addiction recovery. He is also launching a new podcast, Longing for the Spirit, the podcast. He lives in Toronto with his wife, his two boys, and his dog. We're going to get Paul up here tonight. He's going to guide us through. Paul Silva, welcome to Undivided. Oh, thank you so much, Frank. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's um, such a huge topic, and like I said in the open, it, it affects everyone. Uh, this part of the show is called the Divide Segment, where we're going to look at this division of, of addiction. And so I guess we should start with your own experience with addiction and with the stigma around it. Yeah, you know, it's just, um, you know, as you were listening, listening off those uh, stats, uh, you know, what's, in, what's also important to understand is that doesn't even include, you know, those are might be uh, stats where they have found direct uh, links to, um, you know, to heroin death and all that. But it's such a hard stat to come accurately because there's so many other things, you know, suicides and acts, you know, all those kind of things that happen surrounding drugs and alcohol. So you can imagine those numbers are actually probably even higher. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Uh, you know, my, my personal uh, journey, uh, you know, I'd like to joke that I went to a party when I was 15 and I came back when I was 40. It was a 25-year temper tantrum, <laughs> essentially. And um, it, you know, addiction is, 
just for transparency, I my my drug of choice or drug of no choice uh, really was alcohol, um, and you know that it's 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 a it's an elevator that goes down. You know, you get to a point where you cross a line, and you know you can't turn a pickle back into a cucumber, as they say. And you know there was that line is blurry for, and that was blurry for myself. And so my story, and I'm not going to go into it very heavily because that's that's not what we're here, but uh, it was a downward spiral. And there's so many factors that, that add, you know, even looking back now, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it was, you know, and that, that brought me to that point. But the elevator always goes down when it comes to addiction. You know, it's never coming back up, but it's up to us to decide when we want to step out. And for me, I stepped out when I was 40 and I had suffered many consequences. Uh, because of my my alcoholism, uh, I suffered in all areas of my life, and it had gotten to a point where um, I hit several bottoms, and my final bottom was just me saying I can't do this anymore. And from there, it was uh, just getting into detox and the treatment, and that was back May fourth, May the fourth be with you, uh, 2011. Um, and since then, I've just been working with uh, working on myself clearly and working with others. And that brought me to the point of becoming a coach and now working with, uh, with those in uh, transition and primarily in uh, addiction recovery. Um, as to your point about the stigma, um, you know, and we'll get to this, but, you know, alcoholism is, is more accepted and people know a lot more people uh, with alcohol issues as compared to uh, street drugs. And so I personally uh, have not directly been affected by stigma, but it is there. It is very strong. And so I count myself blessed that I've been surrounded by people who are supportive, but I am, you know, I understand that I'm privileged that way and I'm very lucky. And a lot of people don't have that. And so because alcoholism is a more, you know, quote unquote, accepted form of addiction, um, it, it was easier for me to, and it is still easier for me to tell my story a little bit more and to know that people understand it more. But outside of that, there's still a, a lot of stigma. There is. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the root cause of that? Do you, um, have you done any uh, type of, um, you're just in your interactions with different clients and your interactions with different people around this, in this area of addiction. Uh, what, what really drives that, that societal stigma? Yeah, there, there are a few, um, there are a few factors in that, Frank. It's, you know, many believe that addiction is a moral problem and that people with addiction or substance use disorder uh, choose to continue using drugs. You know, unlike other chronic health conditions, those in recovery uh, from addiction are usually blamed for their problems. And people carry, you know, family, friends, general public carry negative feelings about, you know, drug use or behavior. They even use terms like, you know, junkie or alky or crackhead. And these are the thoughts, feelings, and labels that, that create and perpetuate some of the stigma. And, you know, because also alcohol and other drug addiction 
things that come with that are like impaired judgment or erratic behavior. And, and that, of course, causes negative consequences, you know, legal, occupational, relationship, all those things that, you know, those bottoms I was talking about. And a lot of those consequences, consequences cause embarrassment and shame. And shame is a huge thing. And I'll be talking about that. But that causes embarrassment, shame among those who are afflicted and affected. And so that combination of personal shame and public perception is what really cements the stigma. And it produces, it's, it's ironic that stigma uh, actually prevents a lot of people from getting help and getting into recovery. Um, stigma of addiction is seemed like, it, it's like a barrier to effective addiction prevention or treatment or recovery efforts. And it, you know, and it prevents many people from, from breaking through and asking for help because they feel that uh, they're to blame, you know, that they made the poor choices. And so, you know, people with addiction are more likely to be perceived as having control over their illness. And, and so there's a lot more blaming and there's a lot less empathy. And, and so it, you know, that is key to the sort of societal or cultural stigma against uh, uh, addiction and addicts. Uh, and if you look at things like, you know, lack of employment and, you know, uh, um, just how addicts are, are treated and looked down upon, because, again, there's this sense that it's their fault. And so I think, Frank, that that is very general like that. That's where a lot of that stigma stems from. Right. So it's different than. You, you, when when you go through different training, they'll tell you that addiction is a disease, and it's something that that happens within, you know, the human mind. And uh, there's a lot of things involved, you know, within the within the human body, and then psychologically, and there, there's so many different aspects to it that then at the same time, you know, it's looked at differently like you had alluded to, then like cancer or heart disease or something like that, because it's looked at it almost, almost as like an elective disease where you chose this uh, almost like a lifestyle. You, you chose to be, and we had a whole show about labels, um, you know, with Alexander Maffitt, you chose to be a junkie or, or an algae. Mm. And, and society kind of feels that way. Uh, you know, so-and-so is a drunk, right? You hear that expression a lot. So-and-so can't hold down a job. You know, he's a total mess because, you know, he, um, he can't quit the bottle, you know, is, is the expression, or he can't quit using the junk. And instead of, of having some empathy for that person and empathy for that situation, I could see that that's a really good point that it ends up, holding back you know, any measures to try and, and remedy the situation because that, that person feels like they've already been, you know, judge, jury, and the whole thing. We're at 7.15. It goes by quick. Uh, we'll do our 15-minute stop real fast, and then we'll be back to Undivided Episode 47, The Stigma of Addiction. But first, uh, upcoming show promotions here on the Networks of Life Coach Radio, Replenish Me. That's Replenish Me with Cordelia Gaffar. 
Corey Dealey, as far as the host, Replenish Me. A new episode comes your way one week from tonight, Wednesday, June the 12th at 7 p.m., live on the Life Coach chat channel. That's Replenish Me, Cordelia Kafar, Wednesday, June the 12th at 7 p.m., live on the Life Coach chat channel. Check out that site to take a look at the show and the guest. There's a whole episode description up. And let's uh, raise some money tonight. Catholic Charities, 800-919-9338. That's Catholic Charities, 800-919-9338. And www.salvationarmyus.org. That's SalvationArmyUS.org. Enter your zip code to donate to your local community or within your local community, or enter the poor zip code in your state after Googling that and donate to them. That's a great idea, right? And we're back here on Undivided Episode 47, The Stigma of Addiction. Frank J. Maduri with you, Paul Silva, our guest this evening. And when we had left off, Paul, we were talking about stigma in society, there's also an impact of addiction on the family. You know, I had alluded to that in the intro, you know, my own situation, I know that there was. Um, can you talk about that both maybe in terms of, of, you know, the impact that addiction has on children, a spouse, siblings, parents, the whole family dynamic is affected by this. Yeah, you know, we can talk about that for, for hours. And, you know, you mentioned about being <laughs> an adult, adult child of alcoholics. And, and uh, I know a lot of people who are in that uh, program. It's a 12-step program, ACOA, and it's a lot of work on the inner child. And they do a lot of inner parenting. And, and, and so um, it, it definitely, you know, they call it a family illness. Uh, one person may be active, but it affects everyone. And in terms of the family, of course, it, it, it strikes hardest. And, you know, depending on the structure of the family, uh, it'll, it, it'll impact in different ways. So uh, a lot of times there's codependency, and we've heard that many times. And that, you know, and, and there's enabling. So they, they sound similar, but there's a bit of a difference. Enabling is, is, occurs when another person, often a codependent, who kind of helps or encourages the, the addict to continue using uh, either directly or indirectly, um, you know, they will cover up. They'll be the one who calls in sick for them. They will, you know, give them money and all that. So there's no negative consequences for that person. So they'll continue. And so that's enabling. Codependency is um, usually a dynamic where the, the person becomes addicted to the addict. <laughs> so, they're emotional. They, so they go through their own addiction, so to speak, their, their whole lives around the addict. And a lot of times when the addict becomes, gets uh, sober or they get well, uh, they have issues too. And that's why there's things like Al-Anon and, and other programs that help them. But, you know, for, you know, let's say for if there's uh, small children, you know, the parent of small children uh, maybe attempt to compensate for deficiencies that the substance abusing spouse has developed as a consequence of that abuse. So uh, children, you know, may act as replacement or surrogate spouses for the parent who abuses. Um, children will put up, you know, elaborate systems of denial to protect themselves. Um, you know, aging parents of adults with substance uh, use disorders uh, may maintain, you know, 
inappropriate dependent relationships with the grown children, again, with some enabling or codependency. And then, you know, it, and that's just the nuclear family, the nuclear family, and then extended family members also may experience, you know, feelings of abandonment or anxiety or fear, anger, you know, a lot of anger there sometimes, concern, embarrassment, guilt. Um, they may want to ignore or cut ties with the person abusing. And, you know, and I've seen this, I've worked with, with um, uh, I've, I've worked with mothers and partners and all that. Some have had to actually get legal protection, you know, from their son or from their husband or wife. And, you know, and definitely the effect, it can be generational as well. And we've seen that where, you know, dad was an alcoholic and his dad was an alcoholic and his mom. And, and it can be generational as well because, you know, what model, what behavior is being modeled at home. And so there's just so, it, it, can, it can seep in so many ways, how life is at home day to day, but then all the emotional uh, turmoil and all the echoes that happen throughout the generation. So there's just so many ways, Frank, that, that it affects the family. And I've seen that too, to your point, you know, with people that generationally, well, this is how my dad was. Or my dad drank and, you know, smoked cigars and every, you know, night he came home, there was a, you know, a scotch ready for him or whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've known some people that have really struggled, uh, friendships of mine that have really struggled through some things. Well, you know, I learned that from other people in my family or I started using drugs with my cousin, you know, let's say. And then, you know, I went down the rabbit hole and, you know, now I'm, my life's, you know, upside down. Um, and I know people that have, have gone through and, and made it, you know, through recovery, um, you know, God willing to the other side and, and have turned their lives around. The workplace view of, of addiction, said, I appreciate the line of sight on, on the family impact, which is certainly really profound. The workplace view, which, you know, I had, you know, spoken about in the intro, my own situation, I was affected by it. Uh, it what's the workplace view of it? Is it different by industry? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, every industry uh, will have their own views of addiction. You know, I, I've, I've looked many times uh, in, in talking to people, you know, there's, there's certainly like a top 10 high, you know, of, of industries that have a higher percentage of drinking or drugging or chances of drinking or drugging, you know, everything from arts and entertainment, hospitality, like myself, uh, sales, real estate, first responders is a big one, healthcare workers, nurses, et cetera. So um, they, and, you know, some industries have heavy drinking as part of their, you know, culture. And like, I know someone who's in advertising, who was in advertising, and that was a big thing, you know, and, so each industry mm-hmm. will have uh, different views of what uh, addiction or uh, alcoholism will, list, will look at. But, you know, in the end, a lot of industries will distance themselves from, from the, the, the addict or the alcoholic. And, you know, without getting there's, – there's, there's a whole wall of stats. You talked about stats at the top there. But, uh, you know, addiction, let's say, costs in the state, costs businesses and organizations uh, an average of $81 million a billion, sorry, one billion in lost profits every year. And we're talking about losses in productivity, wow. high turnover rates, theft, 
uh, increases in absenteeism, utilization of sick time, decreases in quality of work. Um, and so there's just, again, just like with the family, this, this branches out in so many different ways. And because alcohol and drug use can increase the number of occupational injuries and fatalities, a lot of uh, industries are starting to take notice, not only because of the financial repercussions, but, but now there's a bit of a more of understanding of what um, addiction is and, and looking at how it can affect the workplace. So HR and other departments are really trying to help uh, a lot of, of the people who are, uh, who are suffering. And so they're looking at beyond the bottom line and trying to look at the health of their employees. They're, what they're realizing is that this may be no different than someone who has, you know, maybe lost a finger or who, had, who has pulled their back or hurt, you know, herniated disc or whatever it is. So, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things where it's slowly coming around and, in, and a lot of industries are coming to that place where they're seeing it as something that uh, benefits and everything can extend. But certainly there are some other industries which will blow it off because they see it as just part of the culture and perhaps, you know, so-and-so can't handle it. And whatever they do, that's their problem and not theirs. So there's still, there, there is, the, the ship is riding a little bit, but it's still taking time. That's some great insight, you know, for our audience. Um, as I said in my own situation, I, and I've talked about it on, on the program during the run of the series, uh, on different episodes that we've had on workplace interaction and leadership versus being a boss and things of that nature. I had two, I had two supervisors in, in the past of my career and I want to get your thoughts now on, on the functioning alcoholic um, and that resistance to rehab, uh, that functioning alcohol, alcoholism, uh, that, that alcoholic that can still function. One of those people that I had interaction with was that I know someone else very well who was a functioning alcoholic or what you could term, quote, unquote, a functioning alcoholic, and the other person was not the other person I had direct interaction with in, in my career was, was not functioning very well. Um, but there were other circumstances around the fact that, you know, it was part of the culture that, that the person was still employed. So what are your thoughts on the functioning alcoholic and their role in the workplace and, and some of that being like a resistance to rehab type of, of scenario? Yeah. You know, I always, I do kind of laugh when I hear functioning alcoholic because I, I always think functioning compared to what, you know, the way I look at it, it's alcoholism that hasn't caught up to them yet. And there's an acronym we use Y-E-T yet, and you're eligible too. So people who haven't lost the, the family yet, who haven't lost the job yet, who have yet, 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 you're eligible too. Um, but yeah, I mean, high functioning alcoholics, I mean, when we, we, we see them on the surface have everything going for them. Yeah, they drink too much, but they still may excel at work. And they, they, at the moment, they still have good relationships with family and friends. Um, and their success often works against them because they tend to think that they have their drinking under control or their drugging under control because they're basing it on their achievements. And whether it takes months or years or even weeks, it, it does eventually catch up to them. But what makes dealing with them... Uh, so challenging, especially in, in the face of 
uh, going to rehab is, is that they're often in very deep denial about their problem. And for them, because there's ego, and they've managed to maintain the appearance of success in spite of their addiction. Um, you know, there are some people who, talking about enabling, there are some people around them that have friends or loved ones who help cover up the consequences of their drinking or drugging. And, and it may be unconscious for the, the people around them. And, you know, a lot of times we, we see uh, the functioning, quote-unquote, alcoholic is, you know, intelligent and hardworking, and well-educated, and they've got status and personal success. And so to present to them that they have a problem is, is very hard on them ego-wise because they don't see that, you know, and, and they may not even be suffering physically yet. Um, so ego and pride are hijack their way into getting help. And they kind of see, you know, their ability to juggle everything as a badge of honor. I, I feel in talking to a lot of these guys and, uh, you know, is, is that many of them do know deep down that there's something wrong, but they still are in denial because they are going to compare themselves to the, you know, quote unquote, low bottom drinkers. And I recall uh. treatment and, you know, that they, I, I, I was in treatment and I've worked with many uh, gentlemen who have been the quote unquote high functioning and, and they have a real hard time being around people that are, you know, not like them on the surface because they, they haven't connected with the fact that so many of us are feeling the same thing. We're coming from the same place. So it, with all of that, especially the ego and pride, it's very challenging for them to see that they are hitting bottom. It just doesn't look like it. <laughs> the consequences haven't caught up yet. Exactly. It doesn't uh, appear that they have, and and so they they're comparing themselves, like you said, to these other guys. Like, man, look at that guy's a total mess, and he can't even like keep it together. Uh, I'm not like yeah. that. Uh, I'm not <laughs> yeah. like that. So again, it's such a human you know condition thing to then make that comparison and say, oh, I'm I'm better than that. So you know, and everyone wants to to say that I'm a a drunk or, or whatnot, and and this guy's you know a hot mess. So there's always these these comparisons, and that denial is such a deep mechanism that can prevent you know other change from taking place until there is the crisis, you know, the rock bottom moments, which we are going to delve into when we talk about bridging the divide in our next segment, right at seven thirty on the East Coast. As I say, it goes by quickly. Audible.com is our sponsor. And after our midpoint of the show break, we will be back with episode 47, The Stigma of Addiction, with my special guest, Paul Silva. But first, some upcoming show promotions for you here on the Life Coach Radio Network and family of networks. Money Magic. Money Magic is the show. Goal Khan is the host. Money Magic, Goal Khan. Tuesday, June the 11th. So it's next week, 4 p.m. Eastern. As you know, Gold does her show live from London. It's 4 p.m. Eastern time on the Life Coach chat channel. Gold is a financial and money expert and a financial coach. So she takes people through in the series all the different impacts that money can have on your life. And when you let money control things, what some of those consequences can be. It's a fascinating series. It's relatively new. She's been on a couple of months now. Money Magic, Gold Con, Tuesday, June the 11th, 4 p.m. Eastern, Life Coach Chat Channel. 
Erica Wiederlight, Mondays twice a month, 11.30 a.m. Eastern. That's a live show, also on the Life Coach chat channel. Check out her website, wethelight.com, for Erica Wiederlight's show. That's Mondays twice a month. Check out the schedule. It's 11.30 a.m. wethelight.com. The speaking of being light to those who may be in darkness, if you're suffering from addiction, if you're hurt, if you're broken, if you're feeling lost, and you're feeling like you could do something to harm yourself, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That's 800-273-8255. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You matter. Everyone's been put here for a purpose and a reason by God. Please, please reach out if you are feeling lost, if you are suffering from addiction, maybe in your family, your parents won't stop fighting, you're thinking about doing something yourself because you can't stand all the chaos, whatever the situation is, if you're struggling with drugs or alcohol, you're thinking about doing something to yourself, please call the number. It's not worth it. Things get better. There are people there to help. 800-273-8255. That's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. The Partnership for Drug-Free Kids out of New York City. The Partnership for Drug-Free Kids. Give them a call. They have a special hotline. So if you're dealing with a child that's on drugs, if you don't know where to turn as a parent, 855-378-4373. That's 855-378-4373. Or go to drug-free. Org. That's drugfree.org. And we're back here on Undivided, episode 47, The Stigma of Addiction. I'm going to open the phone lines now. That phone number is 646-716-9397. Again, 646-716-9397. If you have a question for Paul or a comment about the episode or to share a story or anecdote, you can also direct message me, DM me, dude, at Twitter at F-M-A-D-U-R-I, or you can email us, undividedshow at gmail.com. I check all those periodically throughout our live show. So please call or tweet or send an email. So now, Paul, we enter the Bridging the Divide segment on the show uh, after our break here. And how do we bridge the divide, as we've been talking about, those who look down quote-unquote, look down on addicts, maybe those who feel that they can help themselves, I got this, I don't have a problem, those who think that, you know, AA or rehab is a joke, I know people that feel that way, those who think addiction is a weakness, and those who have turned their lives around. So all these people are caught up in this, and they're somewhere within the cycle of addiction. How do we bridge that divide between all these different facets of viewpoints on this on this issue yeah i love that question frank i it you know it it's easy to to dismiss something you know that we don't understand or, or choose not to understand and you know it's easy to demonize things that are unknown it's easy to stand uh in judgment of something we don't know anything about and, and like we were saying earlier about lobbing labels you know even to ourselves you know, and, and, and or to feel a sense of self, uh, self-righteousness towards others and ourselves. You know, a lot of it comes down to compassion and education. And, you know, often we see, let's say, the alcoholic as that shaggy person under the bridge drinking from a bottle of mouthwash or the addict as this 
shadow in a hoodie shooting up behind the dollar store and scaring kids or whatever. And these are kind of avatars, you know. And this, by the way, these are, this is, these are even avatars that even other alcoholics and addicts come up with. It's, 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 very, it is, it's very interesting to, to see. Again, it's sort of like, well, at least I'm not as bad as. Um, but, you know, those, are, those avatars, they distance us from the fact, again, that these are someone's family. You know, these are people that didn't want to go down that road and live that way. They didn't wake up and say, you know, I'd love to live, you know, in a dumpster or, or eating food from a dumpster or whatever. Um, and so the face of addiction has been changing for some time now. And, you know, the majority of alcoholics that they are, have always been and still are middle-aged, middle-class kind of quote-unquote good people. But we're starting to see more and more young women, young mothers out there uh, with the opioid epidemic, the face of the addict is, is changing as well. You know, we're seeing grandmothers and principals and priests and all this happening. And understanding that drugs and alcohol are meant to be addictive. They're like sugar or Netflix or <laughs> gambling. And those, there are people that are more predisposed to it. And others that are more, you know, just like as some people are predisposed to struggle with weight issues or sports injuries or whatever. So, so empathy has to be uh, is something definitely that we would like to see more of that, that can help bridge that. Even empathy towards the, ourselves as, as an addict or an alcoholic suffering is to look on ourselves with some compassion. And, you know, isolation as well, Frank, is a big part of addiction. You know, the addict or alcoholic will isolate themselves. So they're kind of free of judgment and, and, you know, they have, they can keep their lifestyle going, but, you know, they also isolate because they don't have the mirror, of, you know, of others to really face their demons. And so we also isolate addicts societally, you know, we keep them there you know, in that corner, along with those who struggle, let's say, with mental illness. And there's many who are dual diagnosed, by the way, uh, with mental illness and addiction. Um, and the mind doesn't do well in isolation. So those who are in recovery um, and turn around who, and who turn around their lives uh, are, are finding connection. And so as a society, we need to be able to, to have that connection with them, to encourage those who are on the fringes, you know, to come into the middle of the pack, to give them support and resources they need. And, you know, for those who, who are struggling and who think that addiction is a weakness or, or, or a moral thing, you know, one of the, 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 the most courageous things you can do in that situation is surrender. Surrender is not weakness. Surrender is strength. And so when we kind of, if we can all look at that in a way, in, you know, societally and within ourselves, that makes a big difference. And that can help bridge that divide, it's, you know, the compassion, the empathy, and the education. What a wonderful answer. And, you know, provide some insight to the audience on such an important aspect of, of this topic. And to have that connections are so important. You know, uh, my wife talks about them all the time. You know, when you're connected with somebody and you, are bought in, so to speak, and you care about them on a personal level, it changes things, changes your perception as well. Um, so it's really, and in, in having compassion and empathy for somebody who is, who is struggling, you know, or in isolation, it's like breaking down those, those barriers. Um, how did you move forward in your life and in, and in your journey with this? Um, you know, yeah, you know, the tough part at first was the physical, the detoxing, it's removing the substance from your body. You know, it's, we joke, it's, it's, I, I, you know, it's easy to stop. It's just staying stopped. That's the problem. And, you know, you know, 
Drinking or drugging is not the problem. That's the solution for many of us. That was the solution. And so removing that and removing that as the solution um, is frightening. It is frightening. And for me, you know, because it's, it's not a drinking problem, it's a thinking problem. You know, it's not drinking I had a problem with. It was being sober I had a problem with because you pick up your first drink sober. And so really what it comes down to is once you get that, that physical, the physical parts taken care of, it's all the inner work. And that's what really helped me move forward. Um, you know, it was exploring the causes and conditions that wanted me to pick up. It was why did I want to you know, rub the knee off of me, you know, to, to bring myself to oblivion. And so it was learning to deal with life without that crutch. You know, it was about growing up, taking responsibility, helping others, becoming that new and better version of yourself, um, you know, taking the lumps from life and not having to go back to your old ways of thinking and, and victimization and all that. Um, myself personally, it, you know, I, I did the 12-step program. There are many, many ways up the mountain, as they say, um, but that worked for me. And that really, there's a lot of work involved. And that included, uh, you know, making inventory and doing, you know, looking at my past harms and habits and patterns, um, sharing it with someone, judgment-free, and then doing the spiritual work and also going out and making amends. And so, and then really it's about helping. It's really about being of service. And so it's an ongoing thing. It's, it, recovery is fluid for me. And so what may have worked a couple of years ago may, been, may not work now, but that's life. You know, what served us at one point no longer serves us now. And that's growth. And it doesn't matter uh, addiction or not. Uh, you know, we're all on this thing of growth, of personal development, to be a higher version of ourselves. And so it's just more, uh, it, it's more marked for an addict or alcoholic because the consequences are, are more life-threatening. Yes, we're all, you know, trying. It's all fluid, right? Like you said, whether it's um, – and thank you for sharing from your, your own personal journey and and some of that understanding around the, the physical detoxing, the elimination of that crutch. You know, a lot of people think, why would they want to do that to themselves to live in, you know – uh, this constant state of, of whatever it is being drunk, being high, whatever. Like you said, that was the solution. So you take that out of the equation and you say, like, how do how do I cope? Um, and it's probably, I would imagine, a you know minute to minute, hour to hour type of scenario for a while uh, on how to teach yourself new ways to do that. Like you said, whatever it is in life, if you break your leg, you got to teach yourself how to walk again. That's a very slow process. When I rehabbed my injuries from, from an auto accident, which I've talked about in the series before, that was a real slow process. You know, I was somebody used to doing this and now I can't lift five pounds. They're saying, what is going on here? It's a slow process and it's fluid. Like you said, you know, I, I say to my wife all the time, I joke, I'm a work in progress. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm a work in progress. I'm be patient with me. You know what I'm saying? Um, so we all need that. We all what worked for us five years ago may not work now, and, and it's all just it, taking that in in motion. Um, how do you think families heal from the damage from the attic in your experience? You know, it's 
it's a it's estimated that for every addict or alcoholic, there are 28 people who are affected by them. Friends, coworkers, bosses, neighbors, you know, we, we were talking about that earlier. But again, the most affected are the families. And, you know, how do they heal? How do they move past? And the, the answer, frankly, sometimes they don't. You know, a lot of times there's been irreparable harm or trauma. Um, there are many, many instances that I've just, I've, been, I've bore witness to of uh, separation and divorce after one or both people in the relationship have gotten sober or, or have gotten healthy. Um, because what happens is the dynamic changes so wow. drastically, you know, and I've seen where both people have, you know, husband and wife had gotten sober. And then when they came to each other, they were so struggling trying to figure out who they were. They had no space to figure out what the relationship was. And so a lot of these relationships dissolved, um, you know, for, for, for those with, with children, I mean, that, you know, what we call like an, a living amend, you know, so you're, you're living to your highest self so that you're, you're present for your children, you're present for your spouse or whatever it is. It's, it's an ongoing amend for them. But, you know, there's some things that families can do. Uh, sometimes, you know, educating themselves on addiction to, to understand it. So a lot of people are blindsided by someone in their, in their family being, being addicted. And so they don't understand it. And so sometimes families will go to Al-Anon or for teenagers, Alateen. These are, these are um, 12-step programs for people who are affected by someone in their family. And so that helps them heal themselves. Um, and so in the same way, you know, joining a, a support group uh, is the same thing uh, with Alateen, especially for kids and teens. And there's some programs even for children uh, that help them. Sometimes family therapy is needed, especially for deeper wounds. Um, there's also creating a new normal, you know, because everything has been in such disarray for so long. Uh, unpredictability, you know, is, is a huge thing. So maybe creating a new normal where meal times and play times and chores, everything kind of has to normalize now. And finding that new normal, that also helps, especially when children are involved. Um, managing, this is a big one, Frank, managing expectations. Um, the, you know, the addict who is now working through their thing, like the first year of recovery is always so challenging. And so that person is still trying to figure out them. I mean, I was a zombie for, <laughs> my wife said you were a zombie for like nine months. Um, and so the family, it, it's important that they give them space. And don't expect that everything, just because now they're, they're sober, that everything's going to, like, turn around right away. You know, holidays and things may be triggers for, um, for that person. So it, it, it's, a, it's a feeling out on both sides and how to create that space and how to help them. There's going to be reactions, of course, from the family. And the, the person who is, is getting healthy, they're going to have to learn to deal with that as well. Because there is going to be fallout. Um, but a lot of that time it's worked out, you know, because there's, there's a lot of pent up uh, resentment and anger. Um, and for the, also the family, you know, what's important is, is to find their own personal joy, to not have everything based again, you know, a codependent kind of uh, viewpoint or feeling that, okay, if the addict is feeling better then I feel better, you, you have to detach with love as they say. And that is you can care about them, but you do not care for them. 
And, and finally, you know, some people will also find their own therapy. So it's really creating their own life outside of the, the addict or the alcoholic who's in recovery. So there are many different ways. And again, it just depends on how, how long and, you know, how bad it got and, and what the dynamics are. I like that. Care about them, not care for them. Picked up on that. And, and definitely the triggers. There's so much to unpack there because there's so many, so many things that go on and depending on, on how each individual family member views that situation and or views, you know, their, their lens that they view the, the situation that they view their perspective, that they view their own life. You know, some people are, and I know them, you know, they're stuck in the past and they're always, well, this person did this to me, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever. And, and I'm more of a person that's about the present and the future, even before I got into coaching and, and coaching really solidified that for me, but it's more about, okay, this happened. You know, this is part of my life, but it was then and now, and how are we going to move forward? You know, what does tomorrow look like? Yeah. You know, what does today look like? Um, Cause I can't change yesterday or last week or last year. Um, so there's different ways that, and I know different people in, in different families uh, view it differently. You know, there might be, uh, you know, same family goes through it. They all have a different viewpoint on, you know, the damage caused by the addict. You know, they, they're either not going to forgive them or they're going to hold some kind of grudge. And others are like, oh, I'd rather just move forward. I'd rather just move on. Uh, so it depends, I think, on the situation, the person. Um What's the role of coaching? We always try and circle to that at this point in the show. We're about 10 minutes to the hour, thereabouts, um, here on the East Coast, uh, 749 to be exact. Uh, what's the role of coaching in addiction? Yeah, the, the, the role of coaching in addiction, you know, as you know, I mean, therapy or counseling brings people from dysfunctional to functional when, when someone is in full blown active addiction, um, my feeling is they don't need a coach. They need the help that they need, whether uh, it's, it's a 12 step program or another kind of program, some intervention, some medical uh, intervention, all of those probably combined um, because coaching in terms of how I see it, you know, is coming on the other side of that. So coaching isn't something that I recommend for someone who's actively drinking or drugging. But, you know, the clients that I work with and they have maybe relapsed or they're trying to figure out their relationship with alcohol. And they're, they generally don't drink or drug, but, you know, there might be some clearing from their past and present. And they want to make space for that healthy recovery and the relationship with with the alcohol and how to move forward with it. And so when people kind of move through that first stage of addiction recovery, and I'm talking about physical abstinence with some good ground time, so to speak, they're not back and forth, back and forth, uh, in and out. They've had some good time. They've got some good time on their feet. There's a lot of the question of what now. And, you know, when you are in recovery, you, a healthy recovery, you've got to remove a lot of people from your life. You know, you got to change habits. You got to, you got to change your, you got to change your playgrounds and your playmates. And, and, and so it leaves a lot of people in recovery feeling empty or bored 
And I've heard people say, like, I'm so bored, I may go back out. And that is, it's, it's frightening because a lot, of, a lot of drinking and drugging involves drama and they've created drama. So this is where coaching can help. You know, it's, it, it, you know, it could be in combination with whatever program or routines that they're doing to stay, to stay sober and healthy. Coaching can strengthen the recovery through, you know, accountability, which of course coaching is, that's one big thing of coaching. Um, it could be the opening of ideas and possibilities that the clients may have, um, you know, because they're afraid or unsure how to go about it. It could still be unpacking some of the still unresolved emotions that, that may pin them down. And coaching is also great for action plans uh, for people new in recovery because there is that big void you feel. Like, I don't, like, what, what is this going to look like? What is it going to look like? And coaching can clear, help clear, as you know, a lot of the roadblocks that they have as they decide on things like, you know, should I get into a relationship? Um, what's my career going to look like now? Am I going to go back to school uh, there's so many decisions that, that they that are open up to them and that can be overwhelming. So coaching can really help with that and to create the plans and, and, and look at their goals. What are your goals? And, and co-create something with them and get some accountability and even things like looking, you know, reconnecting with fun, with pleasure. How do you do that? You know, without drugs or alcohol. How do, you, how do you navigate some of the simpler things, the things that we take for granted? How do we deal with emotions when they come up? And coaching can help with all of that. And, and what I have found with the clients I have that, uh, especially um, at times when they're struggling, you know, they also have someone they can reach out to. And because all of this is really a big transition. It's a massive transition. And, and having a coach can really help them to kind of ground them to give them that advocacy, to be an ally, but also to, to challenge them, push them a little bit as they find their new life in recovery. What a fabulous answer. You know, I appreciate that so much. And um, for that insight for the listeners too, you know, I had a friend that was uh, still is in recovery. And when you mentioned it, I kind of, brought this up for me that they had a hard time reconnecting with fun. You know, my wife has a background in social work. I've shared that on the, on the program before, and she calls it people, places, and things. And like you said, you have to change a lot of your friends. You have to change. It's the people, places, and things, man. That's always going to get you (laughs) drawn back into those things you got to change, right? Yeah. Change who you hang out with, where you hang out and what things you don't. Uh, mm-hmm. My friend had a big transition there. He had difficulty because he'd say, even like going out to a restaurant, you know, today, you, you, every commercial for restaurants, there's some drink paired with the dinner, you know, and we would go out to, you know, one of the restaurants in the area that had a bar and it was always, well, it's happy hour, it's this, we've got dollar, you know, drafts, we've got, you know, $2 margaritas, whatever it was. They have the big menus with the big drink advertisements. He couldn't handle it. So I was like, that's okay. Let's go to a place like a diner that has no liquor license. And that's where we're going to start hanging out. We're going to hang out in places that you're not going to have that in front of your face all the time, that that's not going to be front and center. And he even stopped watching TV because of the ads and stuff. And I said, he's probably better off. You know, they stopped watching TV anyway, but um, you know, he kind of changed his routines 
And I think that helped them. But when you said that, that brought that up for me. A lot of people struggle even just seeing advertisements or being out with other people in a social setting because it's so prevalent, you know. And I think there's more of an understanding around alcohol and, and especially around today with designated drivers or people in recovery. I hang out with a lot of my friends. They, they don't drink alcohol. So I don't feel as, you know, miscast because I used to be the one that wasn't drinking and everyone else was. And, you know, so I'll go to, I would go out to a place and order a cranberry juice, you know. But now today, I think people are like, oh, it's more, more understanding than, than there was even 10 years ago, 15 years ago on that. So that brought that up for me. So I, I appreciate the, uh, the, the answer. But coaching can definitely help with action planning and getting you, you know, focused. Because, you know, like as Paul said, you know, there was no plan before. The plan was how am I going to get my next drink or how am I going to get my next high? Now you think I could actually plan my career or my uh, education, my life. So it's like an empty canvas, right, Um, for that person. So we're at the common ground stage now, uh, about five minutes before the uh, the top of the hour here. Um, That's the last segment of our of our program this evening. Um, and in the common ground piece, we always try and give some concrete first kind of steps for people out there. Uh, very similar, similar to what we do in coaching to give people some real concrete action that they could take. So what are the first steps that, you know, people can take that we can take collectively to bring people into harmony, to reduce that impact of societal stigma, you know, both for the addict or the family that's involved and for everyone in in, in a community. Yeah. You know, Frank, and it's, you know, we, we talked about education earlier and that that's one of them as well as educate yourself and others. You know, it's um, maybe you talked about TV and all these things that there's, you know, there's maybe addressing media biases or inaccuracies. Um, you know, we, you know, passing on facts and positive attitudes, you know, challenging myths and stereotypes that, that is still out there, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, attacking the, the stigma, just, you know, line by line, you know, just situation by situation. Um, you know, something else is, is being aware of your attitudes and behavior, you know, examining perhaps, you know, we catch ourselves sometimes being judgmental. Uh, which, you know, our, our thinking, which could be reinforced by upbringing and society and stuff. So maybe being aware of, of, of that. Um, we talked about this also choosing your words carefully. You know, the way we speak can affect the attitudes of others. Again, we we're talking about junkie and crackhead and, and all that, you know, and we kind of say it jokingly, you know, like, oh, my God, these donuts are so good. It's like crack, you know, and, and, and right. trying to, you know, trying to eliminate that. Um, you know, focusing on the positive, you know, um, uh, addiction, you know, we, we, a lot of people in recovery uh, at first identify themselves by their addiction, but then eventually they let that go. And that's part of the process of recovery. But so focusing on the, the positive, you know, supporting people. I mean, this, it comes down to really simple things like treating everyone with dignity and respect, offering support and encouragement, um, include people, include everyone. You know, it is, I don't know what it's like down there up here. It's definitely, um, there are laws against denying jobs or services um, to pe- or firing people with uh, addiction because it's considered a health issue. 
So it's sort of being inclusive and really just being kind. I mean, when you see, when you see the addict or, or alcoholic, that, that's someone's son or daughter, you know, it's someone's family. It's, it's an old boss or coworker. And, and it starts with ourselves and it starts with how we view, um, view people who are suffering. And this can also go with mental health issues and homelessness. And um, it can, it's just starting with one person at a time and just, and just focusing on being kind. And, and that is a lot of the work that I do. And I've seen, you know, just one quick thing, you know, in meetings, they have different jobs when you have a group. And, and uh, one of the commitments is what's called the greeter. And you stand just inside the door. So when people are coming in, you shake their hand. And a lot of times, you know, and, and I love doing it because I shake their hands and you look at the person's eye. And so many people that are coming in, especially who are new, their eyes are always cast down. They're not used to people having people look at them in the eye and to welcome them and to extend a handshake. It's foreign to so many people, um, you know, because of self-loathing, but also societally they've been sort of isolated. So um, just be kind. I mean, that's, that's really my best answer to that. What a great answer. And wow. How, how profound to think that, you know, that they're not even used to someone shaking their hand or making eye contact. It's, it really is an indictment on, on society. You know, the same kind of thing, like you said, it can be applied to other, you know, so social justice issues that are not part of the conversation tonight, but, you know, just even, you know, spending time with the homeless and, you know, making sure you make a connection with them, you know, versus just, you know, dropping money or something and running, you know, uh, or walking away quickly, but making that connection and, and being kind to, to that person that's, you know, they're, they're in the hole, you know, and, and they're, He's trying to make some steps to get out. So thank you, Paul, for, for sharing that with us, for, for sharing all of the, um, your experience and your expertise, your own personal uh, journey with this, as well as you know, the, the trends involved and some of the more overarching themes you know, related to such a, a really powerful topic and profound area for people in addiction. Um, so I really appreciate that um, and having having you uh, uh, prepare for this tonight and be a part of the program. I really do. Thank you so much, Ryan. And thank you for, you know, the, the, the platform and the opportunity and, and the sensitivity around it and just, you know, how even just how you have seen it and how, um, you know, and just, you know, and you sharing your connection with it. You know, because it, it affects just so many people. So uh, I appreciate it, and I, and I thank you so much. Thank you. Now, can um, you share with us uh, some of what you have going on? At this point of the show, we like to do that, either about your practice. I know you're creating a group coaching program. You have a new podcast, you know, The Longing for the Spirit, the book. Anything you might want to, to share with the audience, how they can reach you if they have questions or if they're looking for, for different uh, help resources, coaching. Yeah. Thanks. Um, you know, the, my coaching website is uh, www.paulsilvacoaching.com. Um, 
any questions, any emails, comments, anything like that, you can reach me at paul at paulsilvacoaching.com. Um, yeah, I do have, um, you know, I had a book that came out November 2017, Longing for the Spirit, and that's sort of a bunch of essays and some stories all about my recovery through the lens of sort of spirituality. And it's a lot of humor and pop culture references and stuff. And, and that's available on Amazon. Um, but, you know, what I'm excited uh, for sure, there's a lot of things I'm excited about, but uh, the new podcast, uh, Longing for the Spirit, that will start uh, as of this recording, probably by next week, the first uh, episode will be out. Um, anyone that's interested in recovery, um, the old podcast, I still do it. It's uh, Buzzkill. Uh, so you can go buzzkillpod.com. And there's 50 episodes. It's uh, light and fun and lots of interviews. And so, and, and the coaching program that you had mentioned, I am creating something for people in that second stage recovery. And it'll be a group coaching program. So for those who maybe prefer a group uh, or maybe who, um, you know, don't have the means right now to do one-on-one coaching, um, it's a great opportunity. And once that uh, comes out, I'll be posting that uh, on the website. And, um, you know, on Facebook, I'm Coach Paul Silva. I do uh, almost daily content there. And on Instagram, I am Paul Silva Coaching. So lots of ways to get a hold of me. I'd love to hear from anyone who's uh, interested in, you know, either the coaching or if you have any questions, you know, uh, regarding addiction and uh, addiction recovery. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And uh, check out Paul's book over on Amazon. I didn't realize the podcast was that soon. Thank you so much for doing this. And then you have that coming up. Where can they find the podcast? Would that be on your site, the details? Or is there a place they can go? Yeah, so this will be on the uh, the book website, which is at www.longingforthespirit.com. So that will be, uh, that's a placeholder where I've, I've been using for the book, but now I have a section uh, there for the podcast. So I will be um, mentioning the podcast as it comes out. They'll be able to check it out there and there'll be links for the uh, episodes. They'll be on iTunes, uh, but very shortly should be on iTunes. Uh, looking to get it. I haven't guaranteed, but I'd like to get it on Google play and Spotify, you know, the usual stitcher, uh, but certainly um, it will be hosted on Buzzsprout, uh, but definitely longingforthespirit.com. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much. What a talented person, Paul Silva. He's done so much, and I'm just so blessed in my life to be, you know, working and networking with such talented people. I really am. Um, I've been really blessed by God that, that the guests on the show, Paul included, have, have come into my life, and I believe for a purpose. and And I, I hope that we have resonated with our audience tonight and and helped them. So thank you, Paul, for being a part of that. Because any person that we can lead out of this the struggle of addiction and the stigma around it, and to kind of change people's mindset around it, we've we've created some inroads here tonight. And I I, I know it's something that you and I both uh, share. Uh, a real common passion for us. So I really appreciate it uh, very much. And if you'd like to uh, stay on, you can, if you want to jump, you, you can too. I've got to do a couple of things before I sign off, but thank you again for your, for your time and, and energy here tonight. Thanks again, Frank. It, it was absolute delight and, and, and it was wonderful to cross paths with you. And if, if this has helped just even one person, then high five. <laughs> we did it. Uh, Exactly. Thank you.
So stay with me, uh, audience. As you know, I'll wrap up this show in a moment. We'll have to do a couple of things. We're at 8.07 here on the East Coast. I'm in New Jersey, and looks like the thunderstorms have held off, thankfully. I was a little nervous about that tonight going, going to air. Uh, again, replenish me, Cordelia Gaffar. She was a guest on this program, as you remember, or some of you may remember. If you don't, it was being an American Muslim. Check the show out. It was quite powerful. Uh, Cordelia was a guest here. She has her own show. It's one week from tonight, Wednesday, June 12th, 7 p.m. live on the Life Coach chat channel. Check out the website to get information on our guest on the show. Money Magic. Money Magic with Volcan, Tuesday, June 11th at 4 p.m. Eastern on the Life Coach Chat Channel. Erica Wiederlight, Mondays, twice a month, 11.30 a.m. live on the Life Coach Chat Channel. WeTheLight.com for more details. And finally, Holy Shift. That's Holy Shift, like the shift of a car, an energy shift. Barb Heenan and Leslie Pichotti are your guest co-hosts, resident co-hosts, I should say. Wednesday, June the 19th, that's two weeks from today, they're a morning show, 8 a.m. Eastern, I'm sorry, 8 a.m. Central, 9 a.m. on the East, they broadcast out of Chicago, 8 a.m. Central, 9 o'clock Eastern, on the Life Coach Radio Network, that's Wednesday, June 19th, and it's a good segue, my next show will be two weeks from tonight, Wednesday, June the 19th, at 7 p.m., we'll get to that in a moment, that'll be episode 48. Catholic Charities is 800-919-9338. SalvationArmyUS.org, the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids, 855-378-4373 or DrugFree.org, SamaritansPurse.org, 828-262-1980, Food for the Poor, 800-427-9104. There's so many people suffering throughout the world. Please help, www.FoodForThePoor.org, great organization. And then finally, MAP International. That's MAP International, www.mapisandpeter.org, 800-225-8550 to reach that wonderful organization. So how do we help those who are struggling with addiction? It starts with compassion and education. It starts with a connection. It starts for the addict, as Paul would say, with surrender. Surrender is a tough concept for a lot of people. Surrender is a concept in religion, too, in Catholicism. You know, we're taught to surrender. Surrender is a big part of Islam, as we talked about when Cordelia was on this show. It literally means to surrender, to submit. Surrender yourself so that you can make amends, so you could start over. You could create a new normal. And as far as the stigma, it starts with people treating each other as we've come to so many times on this show with love and compassion to follow the golden rule and to treat others as you would like to be treated, to love one another as our Lord loved us. We have to love each other. That's somebody's son or daughter or brother or sister, as as Paul said before, that could be somebody's dad. And they deserve our love and our respect and our kindness. And that's how we will truly live undivided. Check out my practice, uh, frankjambadericoaching.com. I've also got a page on Facebook, Frank Chambaderi Coaching. My books are on Amazon, um, the poetry book, Promise of Tomorrow, and the Stations of the Cross book, both available for purchase. The Stations book, everything goes to charity. 
to agent aid to the church in need. Excuse me. Uh, and I'd like to thank all the listeners, especially the Canadian listeners. They've been so supportive our core group of listeners here in the United States and in Western and Central Europe and in the Middle East. I'm, I'm just so humbled by the respect and the gratitude and that so many people that have reached out to me about the programs that we've had. I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate Paul for being on this evening and talking about this topic. Don't let addiction run your life anymore. Don't let it happen. You can do this. Surrender. You can start over. You know, say, I'm not going to live like this anymore. And take some action around it. And you'll move forward and live with others and live together undivided. My next show is coming up June 19th, live at 7 p.m. It's episode 48, Hope After a Traumatic Loss, or Hope After Loss is what we're calling it. Bronson Bro is my special guest, Bronson Bro. Wonderful guy, awesome coach, religious guy, faith-based guy. It's going to be a great, great conversation on how you can find hope after you've had some type of tremendous loss in your life. So we're going to help you to do that. It's going to be a really powerful night. Please join us then. That's two weeks from tonight, June the 19th. And until then, this has been Undivided Episode 47, The Stigma of Addiction with Paula Silva. I want to thank all the listeners for Russ Terry and for Trina Ramsey, for Danica Treble, and for all my fellow co-hosts here on the Life Coach Radio Network. Until I connect with you again in two weeks, as always, be blessed and be well.